Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Guy here. You're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MRKT Call. It's a daily video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we're joined by our friends Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young, that's EY of SoFi, for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page so you never miss an episode. I'll allow it for today, and then that's it. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy New Year, Guy Dami. In this country, we say Happy New Year, the Merry New Year. That's a little Eddie Murphy for you. But it is January 2nd, 1 o'clock on the East Coast. A lot to talk about. Truly hope everybody had a great couple weeks, people in and out of work. I get it, Halls. Interesting where the holidays fell on this year. A lot of Mondays off. But we're here on Tuesday, and the market got off to a rough start. Rage, now I don't say raging back, but coming back here, making a bit of a comeback, Dan. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we, we've talked about this on our pods over the last, you know, few years or so. And, you know, that whole little game to kind of mark positions up into year end and and kind of scale, like see what, you know, see what comes in the first week of January. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that that's um, that's as old as, uh, you know, folks have been trading, trading the markets here a little bit. I mean, fo- you know, lots of professional money managers, they get paid on year end performance and the like here. And, you know, like when you just look around, guy, and you see, you know, it's interesting. We're going to talk about Apple. Like a stock like this down 3% after being up 50% of the year after gaining a trillion dollars in market cap, you know, it didn't need to be downgraded as it was from Barclays or a negative note out of UBS. It was probably going to be down 3% anyway, right? Like just so if you look at the semiconductors, you see the way that they got marked up in a parabolic fashion. And maybe there was good reasons, maybe not, you know, to be down three and a half percent or so today makes some sense to me. And if you're a PM portfolio manager, you have all year to make it back, right? Like, so like, that's part of the psychology. hundred percent. And listen, obviously we're not going to make a lot of today. We understand the beginning of the year allocations are at play. So I get it, but we're going to take a look at a rundown regardless, because there are some interesting things going on, Dan. Yeah. Uh, the first thing we're going to take a look at is some of prognostications out there that people have made. We're going to sort of update your Pfizer chart as well. And as they say, I'll check in aisle three, um, chart check on China, because a lot's going on there. But the first thing to do is to look at sort of some of these year-end forecasts for 2024, because they range from, I think, 4,200, I believe, on the low, 5,200 on the high end, and everything in between, Dan Nathan. 
Yeah. I mean, listen, this is a tough game. We talk about it all the time. And these folks are like charged with doing this. They have to do it. It's part of their job description. Right. And hopefully it's not just a kind of pin the tail on the donkey sort of situation. There's a whole host of inputs that go into a uh, qualitative and quantitative, hopefully largely quantitative. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's earnings estimates for the S and P 500 it's valuation reasons. It's uh, inputs to valuations rates and dollar and a whole host of other things, right. That go into that. So, you know, these are interesting guideposts. They make for interesting conversation. We have these people who make these targets on our podcast on fast money. Um, and it's good to tease things out a little bit, you know, so we don't give anybody a hard time. If that 4,200 down there, if that's uh, JP Morgan, if they end up being right, then they deserve to be right. If they, you know, like, or they deserve a pat on the back at the end of the year, most of these folks will change these, these uh, mm-hmm. targets over the course of the year. So, you know, I, again, you and I don't beat up on, on, on these things. I mean, some people always have 10% out of the money targets. You know what I mean? Like that's what they do. And again, we're not, we are not going to spend a lot of time here, but I will say this, and I think you agree with this. It's not necessarily the target and and if, and when they are correct, it's how we get there. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, we might see 5,200 by the end of this year, but how do we get there in the meantime? Quite frankly, you know, at some point this year, everyone on this list might wind up being right, which is the fascinating thing about markets. But when I took the SATs, there were sort of questions that made my eyes glaze over. And this next tweet is one of those things that sort of made my eyes glaze over. And I've read it three or four times, and I'm really trying to figure out what Sam Rose said. But, you know, you can go through this, Dan. Maybe you can sort of give me – you can clarify some of this stuff because there's a lot of moving parts in one tweet. Yeah, well, since 1946, the S&P 500 goes up two-thirds uh, you know, right, of the time. Agreed. You know? Yeah, so I listen, I, I'm with you on this. I mean, a lot of people, listen, we're in the business of, of kind of making content. I think what we kind of do, Guy, think fairly differently is we're just kind of calling it play-by-play as we see them, you know, that sort of thing. And again, we're not economists. We're not like strategists. We don't have to come up with earnings estimates and targets and, and you know, um, you know, discount rates and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of people who do, there's a lot of people who report on them. And it does make for interesting conversation. I'll just say this. And we spent a lot of time in Q4 talking about this. You know, 2022 was, uh, you know, a bad year. It was down 20% in the S&P plus in 2023. We were up 20% plus. They look like mirror opposites. It is kind of interesting that we basically closed the year 2023. You know, within a percent of where we, you know, closed 2021, it looked like a perfect sort of V reversal. And for a lot of the opposite sort of reasons, right? If you think about it. So that's one of the reasons why you and I think that 2024 is probably going to be a bit choppier, right? Than it was in 2023. Um, but again, that's what makes a market. I think today, you know, we have rates up, we have the dollar up, we have the VIX up, we had crude up, you know, we had a lot of things that shouldn't be consistent. Mm-hmm. With- stock market. And there you are, you know, put that together with the, the first day of the year and people kind of taking some profits and names that maybe they didn't want to take pay taxes on in 2023. Again, you know, I, I don't know about you guys. I spent a lot of time thinking over the last week. We did one market call last week. We did one on the tape. Um, you know, I was kind of away from the markets a bit and I was kind of thinking about some of the things I got wrong it was generally on the broad market, you know, kind of trying to put my finger on where the market might be at any given point in time. We get asked the question all the time, what do you think of the market? But if you are managing money institutionally, you're not constantly thinking about your year-end target and how we get there. You're basically thinking about different sectors, different stocks, different instruments, and, and what they're trading like and how you might be able to make money in the intermediate term on this. I think th- I think that's exactly right. And you know, I did a lot of thinking as well in terms of you know, how I got it wrong in terms of the broader market and you know, there are a lot of factors at work. I mean, maybe I listen again. I think we all are dogmatic. You just try to sort of 
temper it down to the extent that you can. I mean, a lot of the things that I felt were problematic last year have not gone away. If we get to February with an inverted yield curve, and by the way, we're you know 20 or so trading days away from that, that'll be the longest since they've started taking data in terms of duration of the inversion. And historically, the longer the, 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 longer the inversion, sort of the worse the downturn historically has been. And there will be people that will say, it's different this time. Again, I'm not sure what's different about it. In some ways, I think a lot of the things I was worried about could wind up being worse. But let's take a look at the E-minute futures because we're tasked to do that on our CME day. And you'll notice that we went right to that prior high. We've talked about that for a while. Seemingly have stalled. We have talked about the gaps in the chart. You don't see it necessarily here. But Carter's pointed that out a number of times. He'll be with us on Thursday of this week. And I think going forward, you'll be seeing a lot of Carter on Thursdays. But I think there are five now unfilled gaps to the downside. And, you know, one could say as we get to some standard deviation or two away from the moving average, which is trending higher, which is a good thing, you just have to say to yourself, it's just a matter of time before we take a visit at that as well. Last time we did that was obviously in October. We're in January now. Uh, let's see if we do stall here, Dan, and if, in fact, we do that back and fill that I've been anticipating for a while. Yeah, and then back and fill to 4,600 where we were just three weeks ago makes perfect sense. If you're a bull in 2024, I think you probably would like to see some sort of check back, a little fear put back in that market. You see that rising 200-day moving average in the not-so-distant future. It'll be at 4,600. That'll be the breakout level. That will be that gap. You know what I mean? And um, that would be sort of um, healthy. I want to go to real quickly, Guy. This is in a a fact set. I think it was an earnings insight, um, our main man, Butters. And this was the top 10's contribution to the return in the S&P. This might be more helpful than thinking about, you know what I mean? 71% of the time the market goes up. But a comparative analysis from the past decade underscores the impact of the top 10 companies had in 2023. They counted for 75% of the Mm -hmm. S&P 500 weighted average return, high above the 39% average from 2014 to 2022. This year's standout was NVIDIA. We know that rising to 230% 230% contributing nearly 3% to the S&P's overall return. So this is interesting to me. So like so this this data, okay? So 75% of the S&P weighted average return those top 10 companies. So yeah. we hear a lot, let's go back to that S&P 500 card. We hear a lot about, you know, the broadening out. You know, Carter had some data on worth charting today about the Russell 3000 which I think is 98% of the investable equity universe and and we can um, post that or we'll hit that on Thursday with him. But again, if if those those top 10 companies are going to actually have a pullback, maybe valuations, maybe rates get above 4% again in the 10-year. Maybe we get, let's pull up the um, the CME, the Fed funds uh, tracker, look at the near certainty that we have of cuts of 25 basis points in the not-so-distant future. That gets pulled, pushed out, let's say, right? A little bit, guy, maybe it's April, maybe it's June. All of a sudden, you're going to have those top 10 names coming in a bit, right? If rates go higher. And so that that's the sort of data that I think is most important to focus on early this year. Well, that's, you know, it's concerning because people will talk about you guys always focus incorrectly on these 10 to 15 stocks. And when you say you guys, it's not just us, but, you know, media in general. And go back to that last uh, fact set slide, because I think it's really interesting. You have to ask yourself, I mean, is it a good thing that these stocks were 75 percent of the contribution and now are valuations in a lot of cases that are extended at best and maybe just unworthy at worst? So I don't I can't believe you're going to have a similar year where those handful of names are able to sort of uh, carry the load for the broader market, which, again, 
seemingly is going to have the same issues we faced last year. We're going to face this year in terms of economic stuff and leading economic indicators. So this should be concerning when you see, again, 75%, that sticks out like a sore thumb. If it was, you know, mid 20s or, you know, 30s, we'd say, okay, you know what? Not so bad. 75% is a problem, Dan. Yeah. Going back to the SP chart. So, one mistake that I like very clearly made, and we talked about it a little bit um, on the pods over the last couple of weeks, is that numerous instances, guy, in 2022, when we were bearish, we got intermediate term bullish, right? Basically saying things were oversold. The sentiment was really bad. We saw some of the major bulls kind of throwing in the towel, that sort of thing. I did not do that. On, on, on many occasions mm -hmm. at all last year. And look at that move from late October, the 27th, right? And that's like almost a 16, 17% move in the S&P 500, which is generally unheard of in that short period of time, right back to the prior all-time highs. And, and that's something that I think in 2024, I'm going to be a bit more cognizant of as far as sentiment. I remember very confidently, and our friend Doug Cass reminds us this all the time, and, and he mentioned this um, on, and a note today on real money, which I thought was really interesting. I am often wrong and always in doubt. And I like that because, you know, like, you know, we, we know that there's many folks out there who are uh, often confident and, and never in doubt. And I, I, in late October guy was fairly confident that we were going to go retest, you know, like, you know, that kind of 4,000 mm -hmm. level in the S and P 500 and give back a lot of the gains of the year. And that was a great opportunity. And you know what? I would have been selling the whole way up just to be very honest with you would not have thought we would have been able to, go parabolic the way we did. But that's something I'm going to be a little bit more cognizant of in 2024 as far as, you know, when we have these extreme readings in sentiment, which we have right now, as far as to the upside, I think you want to be very, very, you know, have your antennas up. No, I'm glad here. you brought that up. So if we have Jacob in the fly or Steven, excuse me, can pull up a real time, sort of longer term S&P chart, you know, going back and encompass all of 2022, because you just sort of mentioned it. There were yeah. two times, I know for a fact, there were two times in 2022 that we both got bullish. One time was in June of 2022, when I think the VIX traded around 34 or so, and there was an overwhelming pessimism in the market. We talked about the potential for a 15, 18% rally. We saw it. And the same thing happened in October of that year when the VIX traded up to 34. And we saw it. We said the same thing is going to happen. And we did. What really confused me most of the time this year is you never saw the VIX really get on its horse. And even in the October move, Dan, I think the highest it got might have yeah. been 25. You can correct me if I'm wrong. So I was waiting for a similar type of spike in the VIX, which we never saw. Now, people will say, well, the VIX is sort of different now than it was. And that's probably true. But still, that's what I was waiting for to give me sort of clarification and maybe the worst was over. And we never saw it. Let's go real quick to the NASDAQ uh, E-mini futures because it tells a similar but a bit of a different story. Similar in so much as, you know, we traded up the prior highs seemingly, but different in so much as we never breached the moving average on the way down. And maybe that should have been to tell, Dan. If you go back to the S&P minis, you'll see that we went through it. And I thought that was probably going to drag the NASDAQ down. You see that there. It didn't happen in the NASDAQ minis. And maybe that was sort of the ultimate tell, Dan Nathan. 
Yeah, when I look at that chart, so here we are. We're back to that kind of breakout level. I mean, things got a little frothy there. You see that rising 200-day moving average all the way down there. It looks so lonely. But, you know, if you were to have, you know, uh, we just had nine consecutive weeks higher in the stock market. That hasn't happened, I think, in nearly um, two decades or so. So when you think about just the kind of exuberance that we have about stocks right now, it wouldn't take a much higher move in yields to get mm-hmm. folks kind of running for the doors at the same time. And if they run for the doors at the same time in some of those biggest names, then we're going to have a problem. And I just want to quickly go, we talked about NVIDIA being 3% of the S&P 500 return last year that was up nearly 24%. I mean, this stock has been unable on a relative basis. It is not trading well. I mean, I know a lot of folks are looking at it where it was a year ago this time. It has not been able to make a a meaningful new high here. We know what percentage of the SMH it makes. You Mm -hmm. see that rising 200-day moving average. It's going to be very quickly near that uptrend. And when it gets to that uptrend, if it does, you know, that that's going to be a moment of truth for semis. I just want to throw the SMH up there and get your take on this because I mentioned it just a couple minutes ago. I mean, look at the way when it broke out, you know, above that that prior high from the summer guy. I mean, it went up in a straight line. It's grinding here. You see that 50-day moving average. It's the purple line right near that breakout level. You see the rising 200-day. I, I don't know why you would think that these stocks could not check back to those sorts of levels. We're going to be in Q4 earnings season pretty soon. And to me, if rates were to go higher again and there's any more of this kind of headwind sort of stuff especially in semis two of the headlines about nvidia chips and what they're able to ship to china asml chips what they're able you know all of a sudden you're gonna have a scenario where if that was the big growth engine or the ability to sell you know to china we know that there's plenty of curves but if that gets dialed up you're gonna see this sector retracing in my opinion it was this time last year or maybe it was february of last year where um the NVIDIA CEO, Mr. Wang, said effectively he was really concerned, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. about the tensions between China and Taiwan. Well, those haven't gone away. And you look at it here, I think in terms of this the semiconductor ETF, and this is the right one to look at, 160 to me is sort of, you know, that's almost should be a foregone conclusion in terms of where support is. But that's when things sort of get interesting because you could probably draw a bit of an uptrend from the November low, which we're probably right on right now. You sort of break that, get to the moving average, and then some of these other stocks start to sort of give it up a little bit. And then we're talking about potentially a 145. And then you have to ask yourself, because the the importance of semis to the broader market, what's going to happen in the S&P under those circumstances? So I'm glad we're looking at these both these charts because I think they're both very important. Yeah. And then the other one today, I mean, it's not too often, Guy, that you see a major investment bank downgrade Apple to a sell rating. Okay. So Apple right now is down a little more than 7% from its recent um, new all-time high. Okay. So it just ticked that, you know, about a month ago or a few weeks ago or so. So you look at that, you see the 200-day moving average. I mean, Apple's a stock that, you know, it's trading at 28, 29 times this year's expected earnings, but are you know, I, I think consensus has them growing seven, eight percent on you know low to mid single digit sales growth, flat margins, and some of the concerns here are obviously China is uh, you know iPhone growth is slowing or decelerating um, you know services growth here. We know that you know if the further they focus on reshoring away from. China, right? Like, like, you know, just kind of whether it's in India, whether it's in Vietnam, whether it's back here in the US, I mean, that's going to be expensive for them to do that. So to me, like, this is not that compelling of a stock. But granted, I think both of us, like both of us, we didn't have the, like, I, I don't want to say the, the, well, you use that term temerity, you know, when that stock was down, you know, where was it? It was just below one, 162. Yeah. I mean, and you were calling exactly. for 160. Yeah. yeah. 
But you know, it's you know, interesting. No, and yeah. you know, we had been saying that. I'm glad you brought that up because over the summer, we were saying that. Look, it, I thought 162 was a a level. 160 is probably what I said. 160 was a was level of support, and it got down to I think 162 and a half. Maybe maybe not that low. Maybe it was no, 166 and a half. 66 66 and a half. Yeah. Okay, yep. so there you go. That was the low, I guess, in late October, and then you've seen the subsequent bounce. So. The question, and again, it doesn't matter necessarily, but did we make a, were we right on that in terms of our assertions or the fact that it didn't get down there? Were we wrong on that? But, you know, your point is well taken. I don't think either one of us, when it was down there in October, was saying now's the time to enter a short position. But I'll be honest and say, I thought it probably had still some room to 160. It didn't get there. Here we are now. So we've basically gotten to that prior high. We're giving it up a little bit for Barclays to come out with a note like this. They're the first. My sense is you may see some other people acting kind. I think they lowered their price target from 161 to 160. But to your point, a sell rating is pretty aggressive here. I mean, they're obviously saying that, you know what, this is a stock you don't want to own in the first half of the year. It'll be interesting to see on the flip side what some of the Apple bulls come out with. The Dan, I guess sort of the Dan Ives of the world. But here we are. So 179 or so is the moving average. I don't think that's unreasonable. And I think the October low within a couple dollars is reachable given what we just talked about for the first 15 minutes of this show. Yeah. And I guess the the most important point here is that in 2023, okay, in in their fiscal year, I mean, their revenues declined, their earnings were flat. Okay. And so I guess the point is, is like, okay, so 2022, the stock performance discounted that. Okay. In 2023, you had that, that, that year of, you know, declining earnings and sales, but the stock was up 49%, gained a trillion dollars in market cap, as I just said. And so, okay. So now I guess the question is, what is it discounting? The point is the fundamentals over the last calendar year did not improve for this company and they're likely to get worse. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you think about all, so that's the point that I think is really important to make. And when, when a lot of investors are just YOLOing everything and they feel so confident about the safety of that balance sheet, of that monopoly, of that management, of that market share, all that sort of stuff, that's probably when you should be looking the other way. And I want to just throw another, this is a resolution I'm going to make in 2024 or 424. I think I've been talking about it far, far less, but like, let's throw up Tesla here because like the fundamentals last year in Tesla, they got worse. They got meaningfully worse. Okay. And yeah, they just kind of matched that, um, that number, that delivery number that they said they were going to do a year ago, um, 1.8 million cars, but in China, in the most important market for them, they are getting beaten by a lower cost provider, a local provider, BYD. And again, you can say, well, this company has the margins and this network. Well, the margins have been decreasing. So again, here's another story where the fundamentals over the last year have deteriorated. The stock did very well. It was up 100% from those lows. But granted, obviously, if you look at it where it's trading, it's trading where it was three years ago. You know what I mean? And look at how to how precise that downtrend is, guy, and, and how precise that uptrend. Something's going to give very soon in this sort of stock. But again, I got this stock wrong on price, right on fundamentals. And let's see what happens in 2024. Because I guess if the fundamentals for both of these stories that are very dependent on China guy, if they deteriorate um, in 2024, I have to assume that the stocks are going to be reflective of that. They weren't last year, but they might this year. You know, a couple of things. A few months ago, you said on Fast Money that you know, the the times that fundamentals mattered in Tesla, and you know, basically, you no, know, specifically the four times around earnings, but a couple other times as well, when fundamentals actually were looked at, 
the stock was not able to do particularly well, right? When fundamentals mattered, the stock came under pressure. It's the rest of the time when sort of, you know, I guess exuberance takes over and sort of the affinity and the want to be in the name takes over is when the stock did well. But I think it's also important to point out that this is a stock that's vastly underperformed the NASDAQ over this period of time. If you think about we're talking about a NASDAQ effectively at an all-time high, as we just highlighted, look at this Tesla chart over the last year, year and a half. It isn't particularly good. Now, say this as well. We have said this pennant formation is going to continue. The ranges will be smaller and smaller by definition, and then something's got to give. I think it's clear that you think something's going to give on the downside. I happen to agree with you, but if you don't agree with either one of us, let price be your guide. And if we do break that down channel and goes to the upside, okay, maybe you can play it for a few percent or so. If it breaks to the downside, you know, maybe we're looking at the lows of you know 175 or so that we visited earlier. Well, I shouldn't say earlier this year, at some point last year. And in terms of Apple, they are the beneficiary of passive investing without question. As money flows continue, Apple wins to that 100%. The concern has to be, you know, if something happens on the fundamental side and passive becomes active, I don't think it's going to work in Apple's favor. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that as well, Dan. Yeah. And then the other one, this is kind of interesting, you know, yields. And we're going to, I, I think you, you've done a really nice job. I know you, you're you're tough on yourself on a whole host of, of, of things. I think overly tough, to be very honest with you. Um, I think part of it is like you can't stand how many pundits out there talk out of both sides of their mouth. And, and they, they know that people have very short memories about this stuff. And I think almost to a fault guy, you say, well, I've been wrong on this. Well, actually, you know, again, when it comes to trading, you know, changing your mind is important. If you do it too much as a pundit, you sound like you're just kind of blowing in the wind a little bit. So I think you like to kind of remind folks about your broader sort of view on things. But when you think about yields, and we talked about the 10-year last week with Carter, and we put on a bearish trade in the TLT, okay, thinking that yield would go higher. That was Carter's take. That's your take. And I looked at the options. I said, well, this is kind of, there's a cheap way to kind of play this over the next couple of months, right? As Everyone is certain right now that the Fed is going to start cutting rates, despite the fact that the Fed is actually pushed back over the last couple of weeks about that, right? And so if you look at the dot plots from that mid-December meeting, you know, it doesn't line up where market expectations are. You look at, obviously, that downtrend there. I mean, is this thing firming up? Are we going to have a retest of that 200-day? And what does it mean, guy? If we had the 10-year back at four and a quarter, man, I got to tell you, I don't see stocks hanging out around here for too much longer. Uh, You know, I don't know. It's such such a... I'm glad you brought up what will happen to stocks if we get to four and a quarter. And does that mean if we get to four and a quarter in the 10 year, does that mean the yield curve has gone flat or is or two year yields going to continue to go higher? That's something I have to take into consideration as well. But we did our last market call, as you mentioned, Thursday of last week. You talked about the TLT. I actually brought it up right around 110 or so. How you wind up, you're going to probably be right a lot quicker than you think based on that bond auction that we saw. I want to say the TLT, Dan, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was just north of 100. I think it was sort of like 140-ish or so. And now here we are at 98 and a quarter. People say that's not a big move. Well, no, it's not. But in the context of this instrument, it's the beginning of something, I think. So here's the TLT. Uh, You can see where we talked about it last week. It effectively was Thursday. That was sort of the high of the move. And now here we are. I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that in sort of somewhere between 92 and a half and 95, we settle in. And maybe that does equate to sort of four and a quarter in the 10 year. 
And then to answer your question, yeah, I think it's going to be bearish for equities. But quite frankly, given what we've seen, I really don't have any idea. But I do think there's a chance you see four and a quarter percent in the 10 year, 92 and a half to 95 ish in the TLT sooner rather than later. I mean, listen, guy, it's, you know, when, when the 10 year was 5%, the S&P was 4,100. Okay. Like, let, let's just be, let's call it what it is. Right. So if, if the S if, if 10 year yield goes back to four and a quarter, four and a half, there's just no way in this sort of growth environment, in my opinion, that stocks, you know, can be trading anywhere near here. I, I mean, like, that's just like simple math to me. Um, but, you know, who knows, man? I mean, we have to wait almost a month, I think, to the next Fed meeting. I, I bet you there'll be a little trial balloon floated well, at some point. You know what I mean? A little hawkish sort of thing. And if the data starts to come in hot, you know, you know what I mean? Like then then you have a scenario where yields are going to do they're going to do what they're going to do on their own. Agreed. And it's interesting. You know, you talk about a Fed meeting and again, geopolitics comes into play. We're talking about crude oil in a second. But yeah. you know, there are a lot of moving parts on that front as well. But we teased China at the beginning of the show. Let's take a look at this next slide because it speaks to the sort of the exodus in terms of investment dollars, in terms of what's going on with China, and maybe for good reason. I mean, things are seemingly ratcheting or grinding to a halt over there. President Xi has pretty much acknowledged that. And this concerns me for a myriad of different reasons, not least of which what it can mean to our broader markets, but it potentially could mean on the geopolitical front, Dan. Yeah, this was a really interesting article um, in the FT late last week, and it caught my attention, caught the attention of, of some friends of mine who are actually not in the markets, but think of things in geopolitical terms and kind of flashed me on this one. And I knew this would be one of interest to you. I mean, again, the readings were so bad last year, and we found ourselves asking on many occasions, at what point you know, does this sort of deflationary environment get exported globally? We know that China, uh, you know Europe is already in a, in a bit of a slump. We had just some really odd readings in GDP. Um, you know, last year, like one was near 5%. And, and what was that Q3, I think, or so guy. And, you know, again, expectations for next year, about 1.4%. So, you know, the fact that the Chinese are being so out front about this weakness mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. This is a culture that we know they're politicians. They like saving face every time they have the opportunity to, to do that. I feel 10 years ago, guy, I felt like that we were doubting the data all the time to the upside with China. And now it seems like they're very honest. I, I'll just say this from a trader's perspective, the sentiment couldn't be worse. You know what I mean? The charts look horrible. The fact that they are cracking down on, you know, individuals, on companies, on, on a whole host of different things leads me to believe that maybe it's bad as it is, but maybe when things are this bad and sentiment is this bad, it's time to buy. I just want to pull up the FXI really quickly. This is a two-year chart guy. And you see how far it's come to the downside. It was nearly just a couple of weeks ago testing those lows from earlier this year. You know, I say to myself, maybe the FXI looks looks ready for for uh, you know a contrarian sort of play. Maybe back towards that two hundred day. That'd be about a ten percent move mm -hmm. or so. But maybe you want to see it get a little uglier first. If we could, if Jacob quickly or Stephen can take a look at go back to two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight in terms of the FXI. Go you know go back sixteen years or so, yeah. and you'll see that level that we traded down to. In October, which I believe was 21 and a half, that was also a prior low 16 or so years ago. And to your point, you know, this is not, you can see it there, this is not traded particularly well. And maybe it needs to sort of have that final flush for it to be tradable from the long side. I'm not convinced, you know, this is going to see 27 before it sees 21 and a half. You know, I think there's a decent chance we'd look at and take out the October low. And again, what does that mean for the broader market? And that's something that I've been struggling with for a while. 
Because if you had told me how poorly China was going to trade and then asked me how the S&P is going to do, I'm going to be like, well, the S&P, it's probably not going to be as poor, but it's going to get dragged down for sure, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, and I, I think you're right to kind of think about, let's see a test of that, you know, that October low first. But at some point, I think it sets up as a pretty decent contrarian trade. And one of the things that I think is interesting, Guy, you know, we've been talking about crude oil, all the reasons in which it's had to rally over the last few months or so, and it just doesn't. And, you know, my, mm-hmm. my view is that I think that is somewhat reflective on demand, you know, out of China. Um, and who knows, you know, what what's going on in Europe and I got to tell you, though, so, so you see that headline. This was over the weekend um, that the Iranians are, are sending a, a ship to the Red Sea. We have a few ships there. We, um, buy, I guess, I, I guess destroyed a few ships um, by these Houthi rebels that are backed by the Iranians. You know, I am just hard pressed. And then another headline is that the Israelis killed, um, you know, a Hamas leader in Beirut. OK, so this is Beirut, Lebanon to the yeah. north. Okay, that's where Hezbollah is, and we know that uh, Hezbollah is backed by Iran. I, I am just hard pressed, and, and and I know this sounds kind of, you know, glib in a way, but this is me putting my kind of political science hat on. I was a political science major, by the way, guy, um, and I, I do keep close. I I just don't know how we are not going to be in some sort of heightened tension um, with Iran uh, at at some point this year. Like I, I know that sounds maybe it sounds kind of obvious, but like it seems like we are really not far away from an accident happening in the Red Sea or something going on in, in, in Lebanon, sadly, that would escalate things between us and Iran. When you have when you have the military presence in such close proximity that they are now, I mean, accident, that's when accidents happen, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I, I don't want to agree with you for obvious reasons. I don't think you want it to happen either. But I do think there's an inevitability to this. And quite frankly, you know, that might have been... The, some of the plans all along was to drag us in. Uh, you know, you have this proxy war with Russia, obviously, vis-a-vis Ukraine, and then drag us in vis-a-vis Israel, Hamas, and then see what happens on the Iran side. And then things get really ugly. And then one has to wonder, does that open the door for China to do something with Taiwan? And again, I'm trying to connect dots because, you know, historically, that's how things sort of play themselves out. So, but I'll say this as well. If you had told me on Friday or Thursday, you know, the things that were going to transpire over the weekend and then what would happen to crude oil, be like, we got to be north of 80 bucks. Yeah. And here we are floundering in terms of the underlying commodity, which I think speaks volumes in terms of the underlying weakness, your point about demand. Yeah. And, and I guess that, that that is kind of my point. And look at the intraday chart here, you know, with that headline that, that started out and you you would just think it's trading better. But, it, it you know, every rally guy gets it's sold whack. and that's just mm-hmm. a supply thing. You know, the last thing I just say is that we, you know, we haven't even mentioned, you know, the 2024, you know, is just for all of us who just you know, I know you hate politics in general. It is going to be in our faces 24-7, right, with this um, election this year. And the one thing you could obviously say is that, you know, a, a Trump presidency, you know what I mean, would be much more hawkish on Iran. I mean, Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense under Trump, you know, he's been very public about the fact that he basically, in in the weeks after the election in 2020, you know, Trump wanted to bomb, uh, uh, you know, um, Iran, you know, he pulled us out of that, the deal, you know what I mean? So like that a Trump administration would be far more hawkish on Iran. And maybe that's one thing that kind of gives them pause in the next year or so. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? But that's something to consider. Agreed. I think to your point about politics is right on. I personally, and we'll, we'll, we'll have this conversation, I'm sure many times over the course of the year, 
I don't think that either front runner from either party are going to be on the ticket in November of 2024, but that's just me. Quickly, we'll take a look at your Pfizer trade, which you closed out before we get out of here, Dan. Yeah, so this is one. This was December 13th, and I think you and I were both looking at this thing. I mean, this this thing could not get out of its own way. The stock was trading. This was just a, a couple of weeks ago at 26 and change. Um, we looked at this and said, listen, this sets up pretty well for a risk reversal, selling a downside put and buying an upside call. We wanted to give it a lot of time. We looked out to June expiration. So at the time, the stock was 26.15 or so, and you could have sold the 22 half put at 75 cent and bought the June 20, uh, 30 call for about 75 cents. So that basically would cost you nothing. Well, here we are, the stock's just above $30 in little less than three weeks. And that 22 and a half put that you sold for 75 cents on December 13th, you can buy that back for a 50 cent profit uh, at 25 cents. And then that June 30 call is trading nearly 220. Okay. So that's basically a, a 190 or so gain on that trade idea. And the worst case scenario was that on June expiration, if the stock was 22 and a half or lower, that's where you're put the stock again. Um, you know, that's why I like risk reversals for really bombed out things like this. And look at the leverage you get to the upside. And this mm-hmm. is still six months to expiration or so, right? And that 30 call, which is now in the money, is is worth over $2. And that's why I like these sort of trade structures, especially um, in, in names like Pfizer, where, okay, what sort of idiosyncratic risk could, could, you know what I mean? The stock had gotten absolutely creamed or so. And I would look to take some of the profits now and kind of roll that into maybe something in March expiration or so, because I think there's a good chance that if we go back to that chart right now, guy, that this stock, you know, gets ahead of steam a little bit. They'd already pre-announced that was that gap from um, a few weeks ago or so. So now expectations are really low. The valuation is really cheap. You know, um, you know, there's been some huge winners in in this pharma space that that, that maybe you want to address. That maybe people want to broaden out a little bit. So maybe a move back towards that 200-day moving average over the next few months makes some sense. Yeah, I think it was a Friday. I, I think they dropped something on a Friday, which yeah. I think proved to be, as you said, probably the low for the, for, for at least for the foreseeable future. And we'll see, I don't know if it gets to, well, you know, who knows, stranger things. If you look at all big cap pharma's up pretty significantly today, as is biotech. So maybe it's an allocation today over the next couple of days, we'll see. And maybe it's enough to get it back on its horse. But to your point about the trade, I mean, it worked out probably a lot quicker than you thought, but you have optionality now. And if you decided to close it out, you sort of say check change and move on. But there are other things you can do with that as well. So I say job well done, Dan, Nathan. All right. Well, we're going to continue to do a bunch of the trading of the options, the trading of the futures. And I think that's one thing I think as you and I think about what we can achieve on market call is obviously calling it the way we see it, highlighting some of the things that we think are important important in the markets that maybe other folks are not that focused on. Trying to be a bit contrarian. I don't mean being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, but you know, you and I have been doing this a long time, guy, and we know that, you know, the herd mentality is a very, very powerful thing. And it's often wrong. You know what I mean? So So like being in front of some of those inflection points or having good frameworks for how things can go opposite of consensus, I think makes a lot of sense. So that's going to be what we are tasked to do in 2024 on the market call, guy. I agree. I'm looking forward to it. We have fun regardless. And we thank the audience for joining us each and every day. A lot in store for 2024. Hopefully you caught the end of that Texas-Washington game last night because that was nuts. I mean, Texas came within a whisper of actually winning a game that they were down by two scores with a couple minutes left. So good for them. I'm not a big Matthew McConaughey fan, but that's just me. What do you mean you're not a big? 
how are you not a big yeah, you know, he's McCann. on the sidelines glad you know what dude yeah, why are you on the yeah. sideline okay yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. you know I, if Earl campbell wants to be on the sideline absolutely matthew mcconaughey not so much but that's it we will be back tomorrow with guess who ey from sofi back from halls we'll see you tomorrow folks all right see everybody thanks 